We're on a mission from God. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Ministry of Motion Pictures podcast. The Ministry of Motion Pictures exists to advance the art of Christian film for the glory of God. I'm your host, Todd Schaefer. A few years ago, I got on an airplane with a book called Pictures at a Theological Exhibition. I thought I'd be able to get through five or six chapters on the flight, but I only made it through half of the first chapter. I crawled through the chapter bit by bit, reading and rereading, underlining and taking notes on the end papers, not because it was hard reading, but because the concepts and implications were fascinating. It took the return flight home to get through that first chapter, which was titled, The Discarded Imagination, Metaphors by Which a Holy Nation Lives. And that chapter alone is worth the price of the book. A few months later, I took the same flight and same book again and returned to that very same chapter to digest it even more. Not only is it theologically impactful, the implications it has for Christian filmmakers was overwhelming. The author's name is Dr. Kevin Van Hooser. Dr. Van Hooser is Research Professor of Systematic Theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's written numerous books, including Biblical Authority After Babel, Faith Speaking Understanding, Everyday Theology, and soon to be released, Hearers and Doers, A Pastor's Guide to Making Disciples Through Scripture and Doctrine. Dr. Van Hooser is also a classically trained pianist. What contribution does Dr. Van Hooser's work on the drama of doctrine provide the Christian filmmaker? Well, that's what this episode is all about. You have written a lot about um, the drama of redemption and um, faith-speaking understanding and those kinds of things. What, what motivated you to take this path of, of thinking in, in theological terms? Yeah, well, let me just say... I very much appreciate the fact that you're taking this aspect of your work, the theological aspect, so seriously. And I think we're all witnesses, right, in our various vocations. And what I appreciate about you is I just don't know many filmmakers who see their vocation as, you know, tied up with their discipleship. So it's very exciting to me to think that you have this Ministry of Motion Pictures group beginning to talk about these things. As as you'll see as our conversation progresses, I think filmmakers are, are crucial, uh, what do we call it, cultural creatives. You know, you have a crucial role to play. Well, that's great to hear. I'm, I'm uh, excited to hear you say that. <laughs> so, as we jump in, just give me a summary of your concept of the drama of doctrine and faith-speaking and understanding. Right, so I'm a, a Christian theologian who teaches pastors at a seminary. So you may be wondering what I'm doing on this program. But uh, the simple answer is I have a healthy view and respect for the imagination. My students, I sometimes fear, are taking my theology classes because they have to. They're required. They don't always see the relevance of Christian doctrine for the Christian life. And so that was my challenge early on as a seminary professor. I had to explain how doctrine is not simply a dry and dusty, you know, set of truths that have nothing to do with real life, but something more exciting. So I hit upon the idea that uh, the Christian life is a kind of participation in God's drama, because the gospel 
isn't a system of ideas. It's about what God has done in history. And we're involved in that. So I suggest to my students that doctrine gives us understanding of the drama of which we are a part and of how to understand our roles as disciples and how to fit into the ongoing action because the Christian walk, the Christian life, the Christian drama continues. And so the question for the disciples simply is, how do I play my part on this part of the stage, the world stage, at this time? That's a hard question. What does Christianity look like in the 21st century in my neck of the woods? And so I'm suggesting that doctrine isn't simply something systematic that's universally true for all times. I mean, it, it does have truth, but the drama of doctrine is the exciting project of trying to figure out how the truths of Christianity direct my living here and now. And that's the drama of doctrine. It, just as a side note here that I just thought of, I've been preaching through um, the book of Psalms uh, at a Chinese Baptist church up here. And I've been going through a lot of the lament psalms. And what struck me through, through, through repeated psalms was that once the psalmist got through their pain and agony and, and the questioning of God, when they, when they pulled themselves out of it, the first thing they reached for, that they praised God for, that they recognized Him for, was His holiness. It stunned me that the first thing this person would think would be God's holiness, not his love, not his compassion. Um, and so to me, that, that just demonstrates what you're talking about. We have, there's a level of doctrine that we're missing in, the, in our, in our uh, daily living um, that we see in the Psalms, though, where the psalmists were actually living out their drama of doctrine because, I mean, that, what more clear way to do that than to be reaching for the holiness of God in, in your most darkest moments? Uh, you, you mentioned an interesting case in the Psalms. Many of the Psalms were written because something dramatic was happening in the life of the psalmist. Either their life was being threatened, or there was an illness, there was a loss, this is why they're lamenting. And the question is, what do you say in that context? What can you say to God? Some people think you should never complain to God. That isn't right, but we see it in the psalmist. Yeah. Also, your mention of holiness is interesting because I think that's one attribute of God that is conspicuously absent today, where there's a tendency to think that God's business, because he's God, <laughs> is to be loving to all people at all times, no matter what they do. Right. And there is a true sense in which God is love, but every attribute God has is qualified by all his other attributes. You can't isolate one perfection and call that God. God is God because he is the sum total of all his perfections. And so his love is holy, and his holiness is loving. And we could say that about all his perfections. And that's important to keep in mind. Otherwise, we end up mired with a caricature of God, otherwise known as an idol. Oh, good point. That's a very good point. So in this, in this display, um, what is the role of the imagination for Christians? How does that work itself out? So again, I'm a theologian, and some people think I might not have any business 
you know, talking about the imagination, but I think it's crucial because you can have a church full of people who will sign on the dotted line of their confession of faith, but in their heart of hearts and in their daily life, they may be caught up in a very different story. That is, they, they may know what they're supposed to believe as Christians, but what actually governs the way they live is some other story. And I think that even in our churches, the imaginations of our congregations has been taken captive by other stories, other pictures of the good life, other images that are attractive and very powerful in our culture. And so there's a disconnect. Uh, it's one thing to have the right doctrine, another thing to live by it. My concern is that people, in a sense, profess the right doctrine, but they're living by doctrines that are actually are tied up with different stories. That's because their imaginations have been, uh, I'll say, captured by some other account of the good news than the gospel. And so we're living according to this imagination that we've developed. I think the imagination is really, you know, gives us the story we live by. I actually think that if you, if you think of the brain as a computer, uh, the actual physical brain as the hardware, you can think of the stories we live by as the software, the program that kind of runs our lives. And I would associate the imagination with the software, with the program that's sort of running our lives. What story are we acting out? What's the program? What's the software that makes us go? I think it was in your, the C.S. Lewis um, uh, conference that you were participating in, you had mentioned that um, there's a need for God's people to trade worldly metaphors that shape our lives with biblical metaphors. And that's just, I think that's what you just said. Yeah, I, you know, Jesus uh, used metaphors all the time in his teaching. Uh, you, uh, he taught in parables, and a parable has been explained as a, a kind of metaphor that gets stretched out into a narrative. Uh, it's a metaphorical narrative. He says the kingdom of God is like. And then he tells a story. Uh, much of Jesus' teaching is metaphorical. That is, he's, he's telling stories to illustrate something to which we don't have direct access. And I find metaphors can be very gripping. So I hope you like that one about love it. the imagination as, as the software that runs our, our brains. Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm simply following Jesus' footsteps and trying to use metaphors from time to time. They're very powerful. There's a couple of scholars, uh, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson, who wrote a book. They aren't Christians, but they wrote a book entitled Metaphors We Live By. And they're simply recognizing the power that metaphors have in our society. A classic example is the metaphor, time is money. And I think some people live that way, and so we talk about wasting time, or spending time, or investing time. And there's nothing wrong with that, it's just an illustration of how powerful a metaphor is. We, we think about using our time the way we think about using our money. And 
if we think in those terms, then we're going to be, well, especially if we're penny pinchers, we're going to be really aware of every second we spend. Now, some people, I think, would, would, would suggest to you that using the imagination is not good. It's dangerous. And uh, also at the C.S. Lewis uh, conference in the Q&A section, you, you raised up a point about the danger of the imagination um, needing to not being disciplined by the Word of God. Could you oh, sure. talk about that? Sure. So it's interesting and makes my project a little more complicated that the King James Version of the Bible, every time it uses the English word imagination, it almost always prefaces it by the word vain. <laughs> as if, as if, to imagine is to get your mind going on a vain enterprise. You know, it's wasting your time. You know, uh, not a good use of your mental resources. Uh, the problem, so there's two things here. First of all, I do acknowledge that the imagination can picture things that aren't there. That's a kind of standard view of the imagination. We form a mental picture of something that's not real or something that's not there. We can imagine a moon made of green cheese. Uh, nothing particularly virtuous about that. And I think, you know, at the limit, our false images become idols. We can imagine a piece of wood as a god, and so we can begin praying to it and so on. Well, that, that is a vain imagining. But, and this is a key point, I think, uh, every part of human being has fallen. Our reasoning, you know, can lead us astray. We can rationalize bad forms of behavior. And also, uh, our reason is sometimes fallacious, right? We can, we can fall into logical fallacies. So, but just because reason has a pathology doesn't mean we should abandon it. And so, similarly, just because the imagination has a pathology, it doesn't mean we should abandon it. I actually think the imagination is a, a kind of higher function of our minds. And unlike reason that analyzes things by taking them apart, the amazing thing about imagination is that it sees things together. It, it's the power of associating things that we don't necessarily see with our physical eyes together. Interesting. Yeah, and that's what Jesus does again in his parables. He associates the kingdom of God with something earthly. That's, that's a work of imagination. Right, he's so He's assimilating all these things together for us to understand and then live by them, which is what Yeah, yes. And so the imagination, when disciplined by scriptural truths, is a very powerful way of making sense of the world. Even scientists like Einstein have to use imagination when they try to think a hypothesis up. And... Again, what we have in Scripture is not simply a hypothesis, it's, it's the true story of the world, but it's so big, we need our imagination to grasp how Genesis and Revelation fit together. How does the beginning and the end fit? We need a, only the imagination can kind of see the end and the beginning, and here again the beginning and the end. But there are lots of connections between the beginning and the end of the Bible, and in between, 
there are lots of symbols and images that remind us of the big picture. How can f Christian filmmakers um, use this teaching uh, to create their, their films for Christian audiences, for worldly audiences? Yeah, well, so I'm not a specialist in film theory or film criticism, although I see a lot of films, and I've read books about film criticism and film theory. I just don't want to pretend to be an expert. But I do see filmmakers as potentially very important allies because, as with other creative artists, such as poets and novelists and playwrights, what a filmmaker ultimately creates is a world. Um, the world of the story they're telling. The world of their cinematic text, you might say. Um, there's, or it may be, yeah, it's, there is a world that's, that's being created, or at least scenes of a world. And in a sense, a film is like a parable. You're saying, life is like <laughs> yeah. and if you're making a Forrest Gump film it's like a box of chocolates um, but but life is like these scenes and that's a proposition I mean it there's there's a truth claim that's being made I think in serious films life is like this or think of life like this with in terms of this story in terms of this scene and I think that in our society that it's starved for meaning, not to mention visions of goodness and beauty, what filmmakers have to offer is like a cup of cold water to people lost in the desert. Mm. But, but I think that one of the prerequisites is that we have to be feeding on theology and doctrine. We have to know uh, our, our theology in the depths, not only of our own experience, but in scripture as well, so that we can bring those to bear so that we're not just repeating ourselves. Um, yes, and uh, I think if I can hazard this observation, sometimes in so-called Christian films, I think the mistake that is, is sometimes made is that filmmakers, and it, it isn't only filmmakers, it's any creative artist, but, but sometimes the assumption is you have to tell the gospel story explicitly, or you have to include an explicitly Christian moral in order for the film to be Christian. Right. And I don't see it that way. Uh, Kierkegaard, the philosopher, distinguished between direct communication and indirect communication. Mm. Direct communication is when you simply tell someone the truth. You know, there is a God. <laughs> That's direct communication. But the indirect communication through stories and images and poetry and film, it can present the world and it can present the fact that there is a God in subtle ways. And I actually think that's what we need more than just bald statements that there is a God. Because, you know, um, the philosopher Charles Taylor says we're, that the secular age is one that has been in which the world has been disenchanted and he actually says that the reason it's been disenchanted is not because someone has proved that there's no god or that that human beings are only material but rather those ideas have just become part of the fabric of what he calls the social 
imaginary, mm. these taken-for-granted truths that have just become part of our culture. Nobody's argued for them. We just assume them and pass them on now. And so, uh, for many people, Christianity has become implausible. That is, it has, it's just not believable. And, and I think one of the best things a Christian filmmaker can do is chip away at these plausibility structures and just keep on presenting the world in such a way that it does make sense all on the grounds of the Christian story about Jesus Christ. You, you have the ability through creating these worlds and these stories to affect what people feel to be plausible. You you also I'm just trying to find this in in your book I just just read it recently um, oh yeah to associate God's word with light is to contrast it with the dark counsels of a fallen world in Calvin's word unless the word of God enlightened men's path the whole the whole of their life is enveloped in darkness and obscurity yes. so that they cannot do anything else other than miserably wander from the right way and uh, you go on to explain how. Um, God's light is challenging the darkness, and you know that that's one of the elements of, of of the metaphor and imagination that we can be using to challenge those structures, like you said, that mm -hmm. we just embrace and accept. Yeah, um, and we can provide the alternative. Um, yeah, that could be meaningful to audiences. And you know, darkness is is a, the operative concept these days because in many films, particularly those for younger people, uh, the the world is dystopian, right? It's not a it's not a good place. It's a bad place. And I think there is a kind of eschatology, a doctrine of last things, that's circulating in our culture. It's in part fueled by concerns about the planet and ecology, but it's also, I think, a function of the fact that, you know, we don't believe there's a God out there who's looking after us anymore. The, you know, the notion of God's providence seems to have been forgotten. And so, dystopian fiction means it is actually dark for people. In fact, I just heard recently that some millennials are deciding not to have children because they don't think the world will be a hospitable place for them. That's dark. That is very dark. I'll continue my conversation with Dr. Van Hooser in the next episode, where we'll talk more specifically about Christian film. Thank you for joining us on the Ministry of Motion Pictures podcast. You'll find show notes and links to Dr. Van Hooser's books on our website at ministryofmotionpictures.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and please share us with your friends.